Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a longtime friend, a guy who I have tremendous admiration for. I've been lucky enough to be in the room uh, when he has the microphone. He's a brilliant speaker. David, I'm referring in particular to that year when you led the Ad Council dinner, and I thought that's just a terrific, terrific job. Uh, he led YNR globally. I was wondering who you were talking about, so I'm glad you said that. Exactly, exactly. Now we have uh, we have absolute clarity. Now uh, he ran YNR globally for many, many years, and. Uh, it, what I love about you, David, is that you have chosen not to ride off into the sunset as many do, and that intellectually and from a passion vantage point, which is, of course, what drives all the great work that our industry does produce, uh, you embody that. And that passion is still today as strong as it ever was. So uh, a very hearty welcome to my old friend, David Sable. Thank you. And look, Matt, the truth of the matter is you feed my passion as much as anything, and which is really true, which is why I love hanging out with you. And I also noticed that we have a similar background. So we're both into New York and having just real, you know, there's nothing back here, guys. This is like real, I, my head's not disappearing into some blurred bullshit. Right. So two people in an office, look at that. So David, there's so many places to start with you, but it was one thing that jumped out from uh, the crack research that our Great Minds team does at our uh, factory in Ohio. And that is your passion for The Doors, which I thought was really interesting of all bands. And I love The Doors. I, get, I sort of get it. But why The Doors? Is it Jim Morrison? Uh, first of all, let's, first talk of all about, let's talk about The Doors. Let's talk about The Doors. I mean, the, doors are, the Doors are incredible. I first became aware of The Doors. I think I must have been 12 or 13 years old. And um, I had had an accident right before the summer, and I couldn't go to summer camp. So my parents shipped me off to my late grandparents' house in San Francisco. And I had an older cousin who was basically a <laughs> Doors groupie. And they weren't a really well-known band yet. I, maybe they had their first album out, but they were playing local. And I heard that music, and it blew my mind. And the truth of the matter is, I love Jim Morrison, but I love very Zarek. I love the music. And there have been a couple of articles you can find. There's one that, that was in Rolling Stone probably about 15 years ago, maybe more, where it basically said that if Jim Morrison hadn't been such a deviate, and if he had cared as much about the music as he did about drugs, they could have been maybe the biggest band of all time because their music was so different. And just to show you how my passion, how, how deep my passion is, for my daughter, who is now 41, I think, 41, 42, for her 16th birthday, I took her to Paris and we went to the museums and went shopping and did all the things. And then I took her to the grave of the great Jim Morrison. That, and, that... As we walked out of, and as we walked out of the cemetery after having been yelled at by some ancient, you know, Parisian guy who was screaming at us for having like look for the, the low-life Jim Morrison when, you know, Voltaire and Moliere in the same cemetery. She just turned to me and she said, Daddy, you know what? It's so great that you know who Jim Morrison was. <laughs> I'm thinking that, you that is great. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And and I wonder aloud, and, and I'm not trying to make too big a leap here, but jumping to the present day with what you write and post under that sort of imagine moniker, you are also a great thinker, a great writer, and a very thoughtful guy. And I wonder, David, as you look back at sort of the 
uh, the early days in the foundation of David Sable as a thinker, I think people like Jim Morrison and other deep thinkers influenced you as a young man and sort of planted some of those early seeds, which in your case did take and grow. Well, I don't want to talk about the seeds that Jim Morrison might have planted in my life. Uh, listen, this is a, fam- this is a family <laughs> show, oh, David. Please, yeah, please. Like, yeah, let's not, let's not go there. But I will tell you, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I definitely was. I have, I have all his poetry. I have all his writings. I have all his stuff. Because the guy was, he actually was pretty deep and he, he wrote really well. But the truth of the matter is that I started life as the son of a rabbi. And if you ever want to be trained for public speaking, for clarity, for the ability to be able to stand up and talk about any topic, anytime, any place, like be the son of a minister, Mm. Jewish or not, because I've talked to friends whose, you know, dads were minister, moms were ministers or whatever in in various religions. It's like you're a trained monkey, right? You got to get up, you got to be ready to talk, you got to you have to be able to put thoughts together. Mm. Fantastic. Right, we're going to come back to that and, and to our uh, our shared faith. But you worked for some incredible people early on in your career. And going back right around to the time when I uh, when I started working in the mid 80s, in particular, I go back to people like Harold Burson, people like Bob, oh, Co- people like Bob Cohn, who you know, wildly entertaining guy. Uh, but can we can sort of reflect reflect on, pardon? Yeah, I made it to his book. Bob wrote a, a biography. It's a beautiful book. Um, and he's, he can publish it, share it with friends. But I was really proud and honored to have made it into the book. So I'd love to talk about either of those guys or both and just give you the ball. Well, I mean, we talk about Harold, you know, I'll just go back a bit. And I, I've been blessed my whole life to have incredible mentors. Um, you know, my first mentor in the business was uh, a man by the name of Edward A. Chapman III. He passed away. Um, Ed was was incredible. He was a Navy pilot, um, a carrier pilot, one of the first 500 people in the world to fly fast in the speed of sound. He's forever enshrined in what's called the 500 Club. Really incredible guy. And I met him because I was a summer intern at New York Tell, where he ran the advertising department. And the only reason that I was able to get that job wasn't like today, where it's, you know, summer internships are part of a program and it's very organized. Bottom line was that my dad was the commissioner of human rights at the time for the state of New York, worked for Nelson Rockefeller, was friends with the president and CEO of New York Telephone. And so... I end up a job, getting a job, right? Now, I had just come back from almost a year in Israel. This was summer of 74, I think. So 1973, I went as a volunteer during the Yom Kippur War. Um, I couldn't, I wasn't in the army at the time. I was just doing work on a kibbutz. Like I took the place of people who were on the thing. And then I came back um, and I got this job for the summer. And I walk in and I had a suit. And I, they took me out to buy a suit. My hair was long. I was fired up because I'd been like living on kibbutz and had been doing all this stuff. And I remember I walk into this guy's office and there's a huge picture of a sailboat behind him. His sailboat and there's his helmet and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, oh God, I'm screwed. Like, what am I going to have to talk to this guy? He was D.A.R., you know, he came from a, a Doors and Recognition family, 12th generation Dartmouth. 
And like, you know, his little Jewish kid who'd just been in Israel for the year, and bottom line for the next, till the day he died, he was my mentor, my friend, my, uh, he was unbelievable, surrogate dad, he was amazing. Um, so he was, he was one of the first person who told me, he taught me, by the way, never, ever take a corner office. He goes, never mistake a corner office for success. Don't care about your title. Never make that a point of anything. And don't move jobs just for money. The, and and it drove my entire career. So that was my first. The second, um, I got a chance when I went to YNR, which I was able to get into the training program because I had been at New York Telephone. And there's a whole story about anti-sensitivity for another time, which is actually quite fascinating. But um, at the time, Ed Ney was president. And Alex Kroll was the creative director. And I think he might have been president of New York. And I remember Ed Ney walking around the floors of 25 Madison Avenue. And it was it, it it just indelibly printed on my mind. So over the course of a week, he would show up on every floor. And he would just kind of talk to you. Truth is, they used to lock me up when he came because they were always worried about what I would say. That was a bit of a, uh, you know, <laughs> I was a little unruly at that point in my life. But, but it was incredible. And he really cared. He would talk to you. Alex, I'll tell you one, one interesting thing. We, we were working on... Um, I can't remember some fast food, Sabaro and something else. It was like some fast food stuff. And it was an account that I was working on. I was just a junior, nothing at the time working on the account. And they won, I believe, KFC. And so they had to resign the business that we were on. And again, stuck in my head forever. He called all of the teams in, including me, the junior nothing to his office. And I remember sitting on like a credenza in the back of his office while he said to us, guys, you've done an incredible job. We got a bigger piece of business. It's great. None of you have to worry. You'll all be reassigned just for the next 60 days. Just stay focused on this. Everybody reassigned. Don't worry. And we all were, and we all did really well. And they gave us all a bonus afterwards. So I was just lucky to have people like that in my life. So these are Carol, awfully legendary names, uh, Nay and Kroll. Oh, and oh, now, oh. now we're going to talk about Harold. But these are some now of the most accomp incredibly accomplished people in our business ever. Oh, my God. The greatest. And, and I'm proud to say that I stayed close with every one of them. Um, every single one. Harold was amazing. So I... in. Um, so I'd gone through, I'd been in Israel, Debbie and I, my wife and I moved to Israel when we were younger, we were there six years. And in 1984, 85, it was time to come back. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I was talking to Ogilvy and I was talking to different agencies and got offered a couple of jobs. And because of um, Elias Buckwald, Buck Buckwald, who was vice chairman of um Burson Marshall at the time, and was still my very, very dear friend and another mentor, incredible guy. He said, no, come to, come to Burson Marsteller. And I said, but I don't know anything about public relations. I've been doing advertising. He said, look, you write well, you're smart. You've been doing all this high tech stuff in Israel. We need somebody who knows this because nobody knew high tech. And I read, we, we had, I'd started a little agency with a partner 
We were doing the first high tech coming out of Israel, Cytex, Optrotech, Elbit, Elson. They were all the first Israeli companies to be quoted on the exchanges here, on the public exchanges on Wall Street. And we did all their work. And we were kind of self-taught because no one had ever done it before. So he said, no, come here. We're the Wild West. You'll learn a lot. And it'll be a new set of experiences for you. And we'll take care. So great. So I come. And it was, you know, pretty, I have to say in my life, it was probably the steepest and most important learning curve because Burson Marshall was a place of learning. They were, it was all about intellect. It was the most intellectual place I've ever worked in my life. And I'd been working about a month and it was a little tough because <laughs> in the beginning, I, <laughs> we got off the plane on Friday I go to work on Monday. I didn't have a suit. And so Sunday we went to Sims because that's what I could afford to buy a couple of suits. But it was going to be a week before they would be ready. So all week I'm wearing, I had two sports jackets, like blazers. But I'd been living in Europe, basically. And they're very boxy and very, you know, my plants had 42 pleats in them. And like that's what that's what people were wearing in Europe. Burson Marcel was the most corporate buttoned up place. People were wearing, you know, braces, i.e. suspenders, Trafalgar's, beautiful thing, white shirts and yellow power ties. I mean, I'm like, don't even ask. And so I was a little uncomfortable and, and my hair was long. I got a note every day when I first came in the first week. Every day there was a note on my desk that said, at Burson Marcella, we wear suits. So I thought it's the guy spoofing me around. So I ignored it, ignored it, ignored it. Friday, it says, at Burson Marsteller, we wear suits. And by the way, we get haircuts. And so I turned around. I said, guys, all right, enough already. It's not funny. And so one of the guys takes it. He looks at it. And it was Jim Dowling, who was the CEO. leaving <laughs> me these notes that I've been ignoring every day. So now I'm a little uncomfortable. I don't know what to do. And I'm going up in the elevator with somebody. And I'll just never forget this as long as I live. It's ringing. And this little, little guy walks into the elevator. And the person I'm with said, David, I want to introduce you to Harold. And that was my first meeting with Harold Burson in the elevator. The ribbons dripping off his hat. He was this little guy, very soft, with a, with a little Indian. He came from... Um, he came from Alabama and um, he came from the South. And so he had that, he had that little lilt, you know, in his voice. And he said, oh, wow. He said, I've heard of you, Dave. He said, come see me. And that was the first time I went to see him. And that lasted till the day he died. I literally spoke to him up until he could talk his last um he was my mentor, he was my friend, he was my teacher, my rabbi, he was my protector. When they told me <laughs> I couldn't pass the writing test of Burson, it was a writing test you used to have to take. I couldn't pass it because I didn't write like that. Like, I didn't really care. I didn't write like that. I wasn't interested. So I wrote those and they kept failing. And then one day they said to me, look, if you don't pass the test, we're not going to be able to put you in front. I said, what put me in front of clients? I said, I'm running big business already. 
I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, we won't get a bonus. So I went to see Harold. He just told them all that. Right. So Harold was, Harold was an incredible mentor. So there's something on your end that's going right for people like Alex and Ed and Harold, and we'll talk about Bob Cohn, I hope, as well, to take you under your yeah. wing, so to speak. You clearly get the business and develop a pretty wide and diverse skill set pretty young. I was lucky. I was lucky that I was given that opportunity. I was interested. Look, and this is this comes from Ed. The only the only moves that I've made my whole life and my career were where I could learn more. I was just interested in learning. I wanted to be the best. I love this business. Right? I started writing copy in high school. I love this business. That's all I want to do. It's all I, it's not all I ever wanted to do. I wanted to be an archaeologist, an astronomer, like God knows who knows. But once I got focused, like on a real life, this is all I ever wanted to do because I love it. I love ideas. It's all I do. I just like my mind goes literally 24 7. So I'm so, always. So let's go so back. Let's, let's go back. Hang on now because this is interesting. So let's go back now to where we started, son of a rabbi. How do we make that leap from someone who I suppose is taught to be curious, certainly from day one, but how do we make that leap from curiosity to this business? It's not that big a leap. <laughs> what does a rabbi do? You know, you're influencing people all the time. You're, you're listening to people. Being a rabbi, listening skills are critical. For to be a really good rabbi, you have to your listening skills, your empathy, humility. These are things that you learn, right? These are things that are critically important if you're if you're in the ministry of any kind, if you're going to be successful. I think also my my late father was a builder and created a community out of nothing where we lived in Riverdale. There had been no Orthodox synagogue. He built what was became one of the biggest in the city with a, a school and all kinds of things attached to it. And I was, it, it was a creativity to all of that. I was also surrounded by creative people. Um, you know, there were many people in the community then who's just were interesting, philanthropic givers, but who whose, philan whose philanthropy was all towards building things. That was a build, that was a time of building and thinking and vision. And so, when you're surrounded by it, it was it was easy. Like when I got into the business and yeah, I come up with an idea for Colgate, like that was simple. Fantastic. Can we talk about Bob Cohn a little? Yeah, Bob is awesome. So Bob Cohn, um, <laughs> Bob is an interesting guy. Bob founded Cohn and Wolf together with Norman Wolf. Uh, Norm passed away. Norm was amazing. Everybody assumed, everybody in New York assumed Conan Wolf, you know, must be the Jewish firm down in Atlanta. Um, Norman was not Jewish, although his last name was Wolf. So Bob was, came from Brooklyn. He was an orphan. Um, I actually, as I discovered later on, the pieces of his family I was close with, you know, my generation in his family. And he went to school in the South and stayed and he loved it and he starts this firm called Conan Wolf and in Atlanta 
they became the public relations firm of record. They were the firm. When you worked at Kona Wolf and you lived in Atlanta, as I did for, for a year and a half, two years, that was as big as working in New York and, I don't know, running MetLife or something. I mean, that's how big Conan Wolf was and how, how important. And we had accounts like Coca-Cola, um, Chick-fil-A. We're really a powerful, powerful force. Now, at that time, Burson Marsteller, Ogilvy, which was a separate company, and one or two other public relations firms wanted to expand into the South. But you couldn't just go start an office. You had to buy something. It was way too difficult. You couldn't establish yourself. Atlanta, in particular, was a hometown, right? Being of Atlanta was very, very important. And so Bob put Conewolf on the map. And Burson does the negotiation. Burson buys them. Now, the joke at the time was that Bob Cohn was all about wet t-shirts and balloons. And Burson was like the big corporate, you know, very whatever, which wasn't hundred percent true. Although he definitely was about wet t-shirts and balloons, a separate story. But there was also a lot going on there. Norman was, a, was an ex um, journalist, was brilliant, incredible writer, very smart, strategic thinker. Bob was the tumbler. Bob was an idea minute. Now, then I, by this time, they bring me into Conan Wolf in New York. Um, and they said they took me out of Burson. And they said, here, they gave me, they, they allowed me to take Colgate, which was one of my piece of business. And another piece of business that I had, uh, which was um, Western Union, two, you know, fairly big piece of business for Burson in those days. But they let me take them into Conan Wolf. And we used that in New York as a way to open the New York office of Conan Wolf. And then they said, you know, we'd like you to go down there. We want you to go down there. We think it'll be good for you. And then you'll come back in five, six years and you'll run Conan Wolf up here. But go down there. You'll learn a lot. It's important. But also we want you to see because there were like 10 offices. <laughs> when he sold the business, I swear to you, there's like 10 offices all around. So we moved to Atlanta, which was an amazing thing. And in my first day at work, I go to Bob and I say, Bob, can we go together or just show me or introduce me to the people who run the other offices so that, you know, I can just get to learn and know he goes, what other offices? I said, Bob, look at the, like here, it's like, it's on the letterhead. He said, ah, he said, what offices? He said, they're not even mailboxes. He said, we just put them on, <laughs> we just put them on the letterhead to sell the company. But in those days, people didn't do the kind of due diligence they did. So everybody just assumed that he had offices in all those places. Oh my God, such a character. Only, only, Bob, only Bob could do that. So I'll tell you one great uh, Bob story. I mean, there's so many, Coke and, and elsewhere, but Bob, this was prior to obviously to PowerPoint and all that stuff. And remember we used to use flip charts and you always had your flip chart artist because you needed really beautifully done flip charts. And so we're doing a presentation and Bob goes through the thing and da, 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 And he comes to the end and he says, and he had his voice, you talk like this. And there's only one conclusion. 
this is it. This is the big idea. Long conclusion. It goes like this. Tells what it is. And the client says, Bob, it sucks. I hate it. Yeah, but then here's my next idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. The client almost fell off his chair. He was laughing so hard. And it was a lesson to me as well. And just like how to how to turn a great presentation into an even better presentation. By... Yeah. I, I was lucky because early in my career, when I started running the sports commission for New York City in 1986, I met Harold, I met Bob Cohen. There's another guy who I love from that era, Bob Hope. Bob Hope, Bob's still around, Bob's amazing. Yeah. The only person who was elected, I think three times to the Baseball Hall of Shame. So remember, he used to run. He used to run all promotions for Ted Turner. Yeah, sure. That's how we met. Yeah, and so he would do like you know the wedding at second base in the middle of a game because in those days nobody came to the Braves games. Right. So right. he came up with all these crazy ideas to get people to come to Braves yeah, games. Super creative guy. So you you distinguish yourself early. You're working with these incredible mentors. You have a passion for the business. You keep going and growing. Eventually, Y&R sort of comes in and out a few times. Wonderman comes into the picture. Lester Wonderman, probably another guy worth talking oh about. And uh, and you really are starting to climb up the ladder at a pretty young age. That is true. Uh, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I was just having a great time. And like I said, I met these incredible people. Like, take Lester. So the truth is, I first met Lester through Harold. So I'm a kid, you know, I'm 30 years old, whatever. I come back to New York after five, six years abroad. And I ask Harold, who should I meet? He said, you got to meet Harold. You got to meet Lester. And he sends me to meet Lester Wonderman. Now, Lester couldn't have been nicer to me. So not only did Lester become my mentor from that moment on, but then when I left about 10 years later, to go and start uh, with two partners, one of the first big internet retail businesses, Genesis Direct, Lester came along as our and our board of advisors because Lester knew more about the internet than any human being that I knew, literally till they died, till his 99th birthday. He knew more about it than anybody. He was way more savvy. He understood what it was about. Lester always would say that if if people understood how little of the data that we collect when we claim we know everything about you, how little of it is actionable or usable or actually makes a difference, they'd all sleep better at night. They wouldn't worry so much. So Lester, Lester was amazing as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that at a certain point um, in my career when I came back and the people who at the time, this is right before um, WPP bought YNR, had changed the name of Wonderman. They thought it was an old name. So instead of understanding that it was all about data and what an easy, simple move it was, data to the digital, like it was, it was brilliant, they changed the name and told Lester, you keep the name. And somehow they convinced them. And one of the first things that I did when I came into into Wonderman, and uh, this was with the blessing of, of Sir Martin, we went back to not just the blessing. I mean, he, he really encouraged it. He thought it was the right thing to do, to, to give him credit. Um, we went back to Lester and said, we'd like to rename the company Wonderman. 
And one of the things was that he owned the name and he owned Wonderman.com because they gave it to him because they didn't get, they didn't care. That's how crazy they were. And so we went with a presentation. I'll never forget. We, I had logo designed like a whole new thing that around the positioning, what we we're going to do and how we we're going to announce it. And I went to him to just, I needed to get his permission. And I'm thinking, okay, like this, how here's how I'm going to sell it. I swear to you, man, I opened the book and started talking and he started to cry. And then I was, we brought him back. Never, he never left the office after that. Great, great story. So these characters, David, that we're talking about, incredibly charismatic leaders, incredibly accomplished. Uh, you're not the first to talk about these folks in glowing terms as mentors. What do you think it was about that era that produced so many charismatic leaders in our industry, which I think today you'd be challenged to come up with five names that we just reeled off in 2022? Because, I think, because Matt, in those days, we cared about the business. We understood what the business was. I think we've, we've, we've fallen into the trap of digibabble. Right. And, you know, I use Digibabble as sort of this umbrella term to describe everything about digital that's just not real. You know, we, it, it's, it's like we, we, we became, we were the first Theranos. Like we turned ourselves into Theranos back in the day. The truth of the matter is, with all the talk of how much the business has changed and you can't recognize it, you get, of course you can recognize it. Those people would all recognize it. <laughs> we're still doing video we're still doing ads advertising is still selling we can pretend all we want you know i love reading all the advertising is dead we don't do advertising meanwhile what does facebook sell what is that they all sell advertising they're not saying we sell digital experiences they sell advertising that's what they say that's the name of their departments and idiots that we are, we try to be everything but. So it's not about digital or not digital. This nonsense about digital first. What does that mean? Everything is digital. My mantra is digital is everything, but not everything is digital. If you watch broadcast TV, if you watch the Today Show on Channel 4 in New York in the morning or on NBC in any city in the United States, and you watch it on broadcast TV, TV. That signal is a digital signal. If you get the New York Times on a Sunday because you like the printed paper, the source of that paper is digital. Everything is, it's like, get over it. But the output of everything is not digital. Look at Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is brilliant. She puts every marketer that I know to shame. I said, she's not embarrassed to release an album. Who releases albums? That's old. That's bad. Yeah, Taylor Swift doesn't seem to think it's old. And she releases vinyl. And she does shows. She's probably the most brilliant marketer in the, maybe in the world today. And look what happened. She crashed the, you know, she crashed the servers at Ticketmaster. So I think that's the problem, right? We've denigrated our own business. So we've stopped talking about the things. Of course, 
the digital world is critical. Of course, targeting and of course, all this, but they always were. This is just an evolution of what we had. When I started in the business in 76 and I worked on Procter & Gamble, we used data like crazy. Everything that we did was data informed. Like we were, we were actually, you'd plan, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, but a quarter of a commercial based on something. So it wasn't actually a quarter of a commercial, but it would just, it would add up in the totality. It's not new, but the critical issue is what we do. And that is connecting with people, people first, telling stories, telling stories about and around the products and services that we sell so that we create brands that motivate people to buy them. Otherwise, what's the point? Great, great stuff, David. So, so let's, let's tie a few things together and go back a bit. You talked about your early experience working in Israel and one of the first to be involved in exporting a lot of the brilliant startups that begin there. You then have another first uh, with Genesis Direct and overall we're pretty early to this space that we're talking about now, the digital space. Let's talk about that sort of early shaping of some of that digital chops, if you will, that uh, are so endemic to so, everything that happens today. Yeah, so I go to Israel and I meet this guy, Rafi Malinovich, who's still like my older brother and my best friend, an amazing guy, brilliant graphic artist and thinker. I was the copywriter and thinker, and together we start this little business. And he'd been in America, he's in Israel, he'd been in America for, I think, at that point, 16 years, had just returned, and he had been working only in B2B. Now, I was just a kid, right? I was 25, I think, 26, and I'd been working, you know, on big brands. And one of our first clients was a company called Cytex. And Cytex was actually one of the first digital companies. Cytex basically had started out with what's called raster technology, which is basically like early digital. And they were they had figured out a way to create separations so you could print on fabric. Again, no one was able to do this before. So they did it in the in the computer, it was really amazing. And then he realized that you could do it on film for actually for printing, for like printing magazines, newspapers, whatever. And that the ability to go in and create that kind of a, of a four-color separation, but change pieces of it. So like I could render lipstick a different color. I said that because their first demo was for Revlon. Up until that point, if I wanted to do that on a piece of film, somebody would literally have to take a razor blade and they would scratch out. Remember in those days, that was an art. You'd scratch it out and then they'd... It, it's beyond. So we go in, we meet this guy, Efia Razi. The room that this Cytex computer was in was like the size of a big conference room, maybe bigger. Guy in a white coat is ringing. There's a tiny little screen. That computer, which filled the entire room, probably had, not probably did, had less computing power than your cheap iPhone forget the good one. And it took about 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes just to render the color of the lips. Like to make it a different color. Today, that's like millisecond. It's not even, you, you wouldn't even notice the 
the lag, right? But I remember sitting in that room thinking, oh my God, this is a game change. This is beyond. And so we got really interested in all this stuff. And I had had the opportunity, um, I had worked at Wells Rich Green, that was right before I, I went to Israel. And they had won Proctor. And the guy I worked for, Abby Wool, who was uh, just a really genius, way ahead of his time, had realized that we could computerize a lot of the work that we did for them and do more work than the other agencies. And so they sent me out to learn basic programming. And I remember the aha moment when I realized what programming was. I mean, that's all it is. Like, and so that if this is this and this is this, it takes you a subroutine that just takes you. Wow, that's like so simple. So with that in my head and then moving to Israel and having this huge opportunity to learn this new stuff, by the time I came back, it was all pretty simple. And so I spent the next... not, Not for everyone, David. No, but I spent the next, I have to say, I mean, I've been lucky in the sense that you know, DEC Digital uh, Equipment Corporation was one of was my first client I worked on at Burson. And that led me to work on um, Microsoft, IBM, and then Dell, and then Microsoft, which I ran at WPP was, we turned it into one of the biggest accounts at that time in the, in the company, I think it was number two, maybe, um, from nothing, literally from nothing. So I, I was just lucky that I had this, that I had been given the opportunity to understand this stuff at an early stage. So, but, and that stuff was really esoteric. So by the time I came and worked with Microsoft and Dell and these other companies, like that stuff was pretty simple. Fantastic. So you mentioned Y&R before, but you had an incredible run there uh, for many, many years, uh, running the entire global operation and a, a long association, I'll call it a partnership, although I, th- I think being partners with Martin was sort of like being a, a silent partner or a limited partner of George Steinbrenner. It was a little more limited than most. Um, but let's talk about your run at Y&R and WPP and, uh, and Sir Martin, who continues to be a vibrant force uh, today. Yeah, I mean, Y&R was great. Uh, Y&R in Y&R. See, remember, the original Y&R was the first holding company. Although we didn't call it a holding company then. They didn't call it a holding company. They called it the whole A. So we had one of everything. So there was Y&R Advertising. There was Burson Marsteller. There was Wonderman. There was Landor. There was Sudler and Hennessy. Um, Burson, I think I said Burson Marsteller. Wonderman. Yes, so they were the first. And they really understood it. So I was lucky that I got to work across all those companies. And the account that I did it on was the Postal Service, which at the time we wanted was the biggest, that and, and the Army account were the two biggest um, integrated pieces of it and really integrated. We had everybody sitting on the same floor and the way we worked, which was very smart and uh, unfortunately didn't carry past YNR in those days because that's kind of how it should work. We kept the teams together, meaning the management is the people like a small group who took the briefs and understood what was going on, but we pushed the work back into the companies. So when we created bespoke teams, we didn't need to create bespoke companies or new P&Ls or whatever. 
we kept the work in Wonderman and Y&R and Burson and Stella, wherever, but you had a group of people who represented not the company. They represented what they did really well. So, for example, we did the stamp business. was a lot of, uh, we did USPS. A lot of that business was um, direct, just sort of direct marketing, right? Because you were selling the stamps to collectors. So the person who ran that business came from Wonderman. We brought that person. So we didn't take a Y&R person to run it. We took a person person because we knew that most of the uh, Wonderman person, because we knew most of the best. That's how, that's how, how we did it. And so, and we were really good at it. I have to say. When I took over Y&R, um, I had been number two at, at Wonderman for the previous 10 years. And amongst the things that reported to me at Wonderman um, at the time with VML, and VML was an interesting company because I had started working with VML before WPP bought them uh, because I thought they were an incredible little company and I, I thought they were amazing actually. And so, and I had actually pitched some business with them even though they weren't part of the family yet. So it was great, it was great, I really liked it. When I got to Wynard, they were part of my world. Um, and we made a decision that in order to grow the business, there were a few things we could do. We could buy more digital businesses, which we knew, and put them inside YNR, which I thought would be a big mistake. Because if you look at if you look at the history of BBDNOs and and Thompsons and whoever buying digital companies. One plus one usually ended up being like 0.25. Those companies went away. Nobody remembers what they bought. They, nothing happened. So I thought that it was a much smarter move to buy all the digital companies for VML, expand VML's footprint, but make sure that every company does. You had to do digital. Like, what does that mean? As I said before, digital is everything. Everything is digital. Obviously, you do digital. And that's what we did. And we brought those, you know, we brought those companies together. Ultimately, um, in my last chapter at uh, WPP, I'm proud to say that we brought VML and YNR together. It was probably the easiest coming together of any two companies ever. And they're one of the most successful, if not the most successful company inside WPP today, which I'm very proud of. And it was because we had spent all that time working together. It was kind of easy to do. It was a, it was a pretty simple, you know, merger. It was more coming together of people who have been working together for a long time. And it was just an interesting time. WPP was a, I think it was a period of time without a doubt. There was no, nobody was near us. None of the other holding companies were close to us. And I think it was because we had a vision that actually worked. We had really great resources nobody had the depth of resource that we had um martin was martin was you know very supportive for the most part back in those days you know interesting in uh in uh what's his name's book you know frenemies i he asked me about martin i said martin was an overrated meddler meaning that people talked about his meddling but the truth is he gave you rope to hang yourself. And in my view, that's the best you can do. You could go, you know, I went, 
there were things he told me not to do, and I did. And he never threatened me. He just said, I don't think you should do it. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And you know what? I did them, and it was fine, and it worked. And if it didn't work, it didn't work. And that was okay, too. Yeah, I um, first came into knowing all those folks early on. My first chairman, when I was director of the Sports Commission in the 80s, was a guy, he's gone now. Do you remember Gary Sussanjara was a dancer Fitzgerald sample? Yeah, vaguely I know the name. So Gary was one of the guys they acquired and he was in the Saatchi building when it first opened on Hudson Street. And I was in some terrible city office. It was literally half a conference room uh, somewhere on John Street in a desolate you know, city of New York office. And Gary said, it was sort of like when the Baltimore cults left in the middle of the night he said everybody goes home at five o'clock on friday after five o'clock move your stuff which then fit in like two boxes and i'll give you an office in the sachi building and that was the time when when sachi and sachi was really you know when everything was being rolled up in the early early days of wpp uh and it, it's amazing to see what what happened after that. And I think you're right. There was a moment in time when they were head and shoulders above everybody else. Yeah, we're head and shoulders. And I think, you know, I think Martin gets Martin gets a lot of shit and, you know, some of it earned. But the truth of the matter is that back in those days, he was incredibly... I'll tell you another thing about Martin. I, this is something that I'm always grateful to him for. You know, all these... All the years I worked in the business... Uh, with the exception of Harold, obviously, and Lester, but came the Jewish holidays. Nobody, ever, they, people would, would literally, they'd say, oh, you're not going to be in tomorrow? It would be like Yom Kippur. It's like, come on, on Fiji, they know like what Yom Kippur is. You live, you work and live in New York and you're going to tell me like you, and you don't know me well enough to know, you know, like I'm the coachman kid on the block. I'm not going to be in. Like, give me, I just always found it offensive. And Martin, from the first year till he left, came Rosh Hashanah, you know, the new year, always got a, a personal message. Interesting. Always. Interesting. And so, and it was something that I, it was something that I, you know, you give him, you know, call out for good is something that I always appreciated and respected. Fantastic stuff. So, uh, and that's a great story about him. Now, we talked about a lot of the characters along the way. We talked about bits and uh, bobs of the journey. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the work. You mentioned early on taking Colgate and Western Union with you uh, back in the Conan Wolf days, but you've worked on some incredible work. When you reflect on that looking back, what are some of your favorites, some seminal pieces of work that use you and those that have been with you have created. All right, that's kind of easy, actually. Um, one of them is Colgate. So Colgate was a piece of business that has been core to YNR now, WPP, forever. Um, and you know, and if you know the story, back in the day, YNR was a PNG agency, gave up their PNG brands to take on Colgate, and everybody thought they were nuts. They called it was nothing then. They thought, you're, you're crazy. Like, what are you doing? And it was the smartest thing they ever did, in my view. Um, so here's a piece of seminal work. 
It was called tartar control toothpaste. And it was a big deal. It was a very big deal because up until that point, it was basically like toothpaste was sensitive, fluoride, and that was kind of it, maybe a couple of whatever. This was big and Colgate was launching it. And they wanted to launch it in hundred some company countries and they wanted it rolled out and it had a, it was the first time they ever had a coordinated launch. And I became the, you know, again, I was just like a young guy. I became the center of that launch. And I was a person at the time, but I still ended up being at the center of it. And it was the first time ever that we brought in a complete kit. We went country to country to country. And we had a piece of creative that they could use or recreate, but it had to be in the same basic format. There was a whole professional program for the dentists. And there was a whole PR program for the public. And we came like literally in a kit. And in those days, it wasn't like, you know, I came with my laptop, you know, laptops. You know, I came with a huge duffel bag filled with three quarter inch Sony Umatic tapes and lots and lots of pieces of paper and stuff. And we did it. And it's possibly, I think if you go back and check it, it might be one of the first major totally coordinated launches globally of any consumer product. I learned more doing that than you could ever imagine in a thousand years. I'll, I'll tell you one funny story, but an <laughs> insight that is hysterical. So here I'm traveling around the world. Everybody's buying into it. Everybody's doing it. I come to Paris to our office and I'm sitting in the room. There's the creative directors, everybody's sitting around. And they're telling me why it's not going to work in France because France is different, right? The rest of the world, you know, they're all full of shit. They don't know anything on France. We're different. We don't, we can't do it. So as I'm looking around, every single person in the room is wearing Levi's jeans. They've got a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses in front of them. They have Marlboro smokes and they've got Parker pens. What I'm thinking, I got it. So that was a big lesson for me because I never let <laughs> I never let anybody tell me again that it wouldn't work unless they had like really good uh, good reasons and sometimes there are but those were not good reasons frankly so that was a great piece of work that was really that was exciting it was interesting um, it was amazing another one was for um, Apollo Computers which was an account that we had at Burson, which was a really incredible piece of business, very high end, in those days workstations, this was like really the, the height, the height of high tech. And they were launching a new product and they had never, they had never ever put like theater behind their launches. And I said to the guys, you need theater, we gotta do it. And they had done a launch the year before and so now you got to do something because people need to wake up. And we did Lightning Does Strike Twice was the name of the thing. And we rented this incredible space and we had bolts of lightning shooting across the sky. And it was a huge launch. And the CEO loved it in the end. He was like, literally, we took him kicking and screaming to do this. But, but it was, again, just an insight that even in high tech, people love theater. People are people, right? It's not, I always say business to business. It's not like, 
Microsoft talks to Dell. Like, hi, Microsoft. Hi, Dell. You know, business to business. Like, there's somebody at Microsoft who talks to some person at Dell. It's all people to people. And so if you understand that, you can basically do anything. So that's kind of, that was a, that was a great piece of business. Microsoft was always amazing. Um, you know, that it was one of my favorite pieces of business and I loved working on it. It's still to this day, one of my favorite companies. Uh, we did some incredible work for them launching Xbox and various windows products and um, launching their phone, which I think we did a better job at launching it than the phone was worth, but so it goes. But Again, I think almost every client I can think of, I had some great experience with, with the work, with the people, with creating new ideas. So I, I want to go back and, and talk about some of your not-for-profit work, but you raised two points in what we just went through. And the first is said that human to human, people to people connection, right? As you said, two companies don't talk to each other. People talk to each yeah, other. Exactly. Give us your reflection, jumping to some of your contemporary work uh, as, a, as a genuine thought leader about what's going on at Twitter. And what to me is a huge miss of the role of human connection in driving business uh, and uh, how surprising it is to me, and I'm saying that facetiously, that if you get rid of all the people that own all the relationships with brands and advertisers, that your revenue will go down. And I think it's it's incredibly obvious what a yeah. dramatic error I he's made. That, right? But uh, yeah, I'd love to get your take on like, what's what an, going what on there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, sort of insight. sort of like if you don't get out of the way of a speeding car, you're going to get hit. But give us your perspective uh, on what's yeah, going so on I, there. Yeah, so I've been writing about this. I've been writing about this a lot. I mean, I think that there's. I think there's a few things happening here. The first is, let me let me tell you my view of disruption. So we talk about disruption a lot, right? So I I want you to to stay with me a minute on this. Like, what is disruption? Think about all the companies you think have disrupted. Every single one of them. Right. Every single one of them. My view and my thesis is the disruption wasn't the market. People don't want to be disrupted. Nobody wants to be disrupted. You just want stuff easier, right? You want seamless transition, better service, whatever. That's not disruption. The disruption has been that Wall Street allowed you not to make a profit. They didn't look too deep. That's true of Amazon. It's true of Twitter. It's true of Tesla. It's true of Facebook. It's true of all those companies, right? They all got to buy. So I always say that let's go back 20 years and say that Walmart said, you know, there's this thing called the internet. I'm really interested in it. Wall Street, for the next 10 years, I'm not going to make a profit. I'm just going to grow my business. Now, let's say that they decided, by the way, that they were going to grow their business by opening up more stores, different stores. I guarantee you that if for 10 years they had grown their audience by opening stores on street corners or coming up with whatever, push carts, they'd be the biggest business today in the world because they would have had that opportunity. So disruption, now, having said that, I'm glad it's Amazon because obviously this was a an evolutionary thing. It was the, the next thing it was fine it's good 
know, I was in the catalog business. I owned catalogs with, with friends for a bunch of years. This is the next evolution. People like shopping remotely. This goes back to the 1800s and Sears. This is not new. But look at look at Tesla. It took him 18 years to make a profit. I think that's right. I wrote about this. I'm pretty sure I said 18. He doesn't have 18 years with Twitter. The guy doesn't know how to manage it. He doesn't have a clue. And so the whole thing is misaligned. He's right that it needed some work, but that's not the work it needed. What it needed, as does Facebook, as all of them, by the way, is to get rid of the hate and the stuff that leads to violence and the racism and the anti-Semitic chatter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't want to because it drives engagement and engagement is what drives revenue, right? So either they have to figure out a new revenue model or go back to the street and say, look, you know what? We're overvalued, which I think is true, by the way. So just value us less. We'll learn less. We're still going to be hugely profitable. Still going to make a lot of money. We're still a powerful, important company because I think they all are and all have opportunity to be. But we don't. So I think that's number one. He he never should have bought this company. I don't think he actually wanted to. I think he was playing around. And then he got caught. And he ended up having to take it. And he doesn't know what to do. How does now, it end? Way, how, how does it end? Well, Here's what's, here's what's frightening is, first of all, as I said when I was writing this, if you're quitting, you know, originally people said they were going to quit because he told them they have to come back to work. If that's why you're quitting, like, okay, I hope you can find a job because there's not that many jobs out there. Everybody's cutting. And so, like, if you think that there's a big principle involved because you don't want to go to an office and you'd rather quit, uh, get a life. And I hope you can get a job. If you were quitting because you think the guy is a troll and a you know a bad guy, great, you should. You should quit. There's no question. My fear is these guys don't care about going bankrupt. It's, it's meaningless to them. And in the end, won't it cost him that much? He'll have a bunch of people who will write it off and whatever, but there can be a lot of people out of work and there'll be a hole because, yeah. you know, Twitter was serving a role. And so I think, I think that's a problem. I really do. I think going back to Twitter, I mean, part of the thing is if you remember, um, there were a bunch of articles going back where, see, it's all part of the analyst bullshit in all of this, of this so-called disruption. Twitter is the new TV. No, it's not. No one's going to watch TV on Twitter. What are you talking about? You might watch a clip. In fact, you would. You should. It's good. But you, why would, if I could watch on my big screen and have great commentary from the best commentators, why would I watch it? It's not happening. It's not the new TV, which, by the way, is what people said about Facebook. When Facebook, it's the new TV. No, it's not. They even tried to at one point, if you remember, they, they thought maybe they could move into that. Nobody cares. It's not what it's there for. So I think the problem is it gets back to this digibabble to a, the way we look at disruption, which is digibabble. It, it's enough.
Yeah, I, I share your view that the whole thing with Twitter could go bust, but let's dig deeper on another point that you made, which is that the crazy voice is rewarded in today's system. That you and I both know this uh, Lauren uh, Boebert, whatever her name, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, there are give or take 450 some odd congressmen and congresswomen in the House, and we have 100 senators, right? I'd be hard pressed, and I'm pretty well read, not as well read as you, but pretty well read. I'd be hard pressed to name more than 10 or 15 members of the House of Representatives at the top of the list among the ones I know on both sides of the aisle are the ones who tend to get the most press. AOC uh, um, uh, on the left and the two crazies, uh, Marjorie Taylor and Boebert uh, uh, on, on the right. And that's because the system is sort of set up that if you're crazy, your voice is heard louder. Can, can we talk about that? Because you have real perspective Always, yeah, on that. Yeah, but also, by the way, they all they all govern on Twitter. And they don't really spend that much time on the floor. And they don't spend much time thinking versus guys like Richie Torres or Josh Gottheimer and others who spend their time not on Twitter, but spend their time working across the aisle and actually trying to do what they got hired and voted in to do which is create legislation to help people in the country and in the world, I guess. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's a problem. I think that they, look, I, I took a class once and uh, what was it called? Revolution 01 or something. Back in the days when you could just take it, it was all about how to make a revolution. And so one of the things that they teach you, which is true, is that the loud minority, the loud organized minority always controls the unorganized majority, just fact. So these loud people come in. I mean, look what happened here in New York with AOC. We lost Amazon. Like, think about that. Think about what a tragedy that was for the people of Queens who could have had a whole area redone, who would have had jobs, who would have had money coming in, and her socialist whatever, didn't like the fact that they got tax breaks. Meanwhile, the tax breaks were smaller than the amount of money that would be driven in by the commerce that, that having them having them actually come into the market would have created. So, you know, my my attitude is these people are not good. They they govern by Twitter. Like they should take Twitter away from all of them. Look who the first person who spoke up. I think this is actually funny. It's, it's actually tragically tragic and funny. The first person who spoke up about the blue check mark was AOC. Because she wants her blue check mark. Now the truth of the matter is I have one. I've always had one. And I've never even thought about it. Like, okay, great. Next. To her, it was a big, it was a big deal. It was a major badge. So she speaks up. Musk, to his credit, goes on her website and finds that she's selling, you know, $60 hoodies and says, like, you're telling me that I shouldn't sell this for five bucks or eight bucks or whatever price it was. I think he started at eight and he went to five. And you're selling $60 hoodies and you claim you're a socialist? Were you crazy? Oh, God. 
It's uh, crazy. I, yeah, I share your view about uh, Queens. I grew up in Queens, and that would have taken a desolate area and turned it into something. I love what's going on now. And these are all, ironically, people politically who are pretty, uh, pretty conservative, but uh, led by related. I love what they're doing in Willits Point, and they're going to take that area and turn it into something which has been abandoned, old, you know, auto repair places by Shea, and it's been a real, real lousy area for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, great stuff. So let's talk about uh, the charitable side uh, a, a bit. And I referenced earlier the year you led the Ad Council, uh, but you've done so much, David, with so many great organizations, UNICEF, the Christopher Reeve Foundation, Special Olympics, uh, which I've also been involved with over the years. But talk about, you know, any of those in any combination and sort of the giving back part. Wow, they're all great. I, I think the giving back part is really critical. Again, I think it just comes from my upbringing that, that you give back is sort of obvious. But what I always tell young people is if you, what do we do? You know, I tell young people in our business, we're in advertising, right? We're not brain surgeons. We're not solving climate. We're not curing cancer. We're in advertising. We do it because we like it. We're, we're good at it. We're creative. Whatever reasons you have to come in. But it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you can't save the world. So obviously, you can always go work in a soup kitchen, and people should. Obviously, you should write checks, and you should. But I'm telling you, every single nonprofit has a need for what we do. They all do. They're raising money. They're inspiring groups of people. They're trying to bring new people into the franchise. They're trying to connect with the people who they help. There's tons and tons of work for us. And there's plenty of nonprofits to go around. So I always tell people, like, find a nonprofit, find something that you're passionate about, and just bring your talent to the table and it's going to be accepted and loved and you'll find plenty to do. So that's kind of how I look at these things. Um, I spend a lot of time with these companies now, even more so than ever. Um, and I love them all UNICEF USA and uh, my friend Shelly diamond who worked with me at YNR for many years is the CMO and I'm on the board. It's incredible. The work that we do and, I think that just the way that they looked at their branding and were able to, luckily they started before COVID and during COVID, literally keep the money flowing to important places around the world because the branding had become so strong that young people were just giving money online as they should. So that was really amazing. UNCF, United New York College Fund, is one that I'm really proud of. I'm on the executive board. So that was traditionally the um, board seat was given to the CEO of YNR because many, many years ago, we created the line, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. One of the most iconic lines in advertising was created for the Ad Council. You know, it was through the Ad Council for uh, UNCF and the CEO was always on. But they asked me to stay on and put me on the executive board. Now, one of the things that we did, which was amazing. I think it was, and it's still today. And when they decided that they needed to do something else, they needed to, mine is tough to waste, it had been around for a long time, like what's next? And 
Dr. Michael Lomax, who's the CEO, is one of the most inspirational people that I know. And I listened to Michael. This is um, Obama's president. And Michael's talking. He said, you know, it's really interesting. Things have changed because when UNCF was first started and was supporting the HBCs and HBUs, the historical black colleges and historical black universities, it was very hard for these African-American kids to be accepted into the regular, you know, the Northern whatever universities. It was hard because it was racism. So the HBCs, HBUs were important. It was like a parallel system because that was how they went to college. But now fast forward into the, you know, 90s and 2000s, it's different because now they can go to the Harvard, but somebody's got to pay for it. And so, but you still have to support the HBCs and the HBUs because there's a reason for them. They're good schools and they're interesting. And Obama had talked about the strategic importance of getting kids, our own kids, kids born in America, into college, like how important that was and how that's a game change. And so we looked at the we looked at the position, we said, you know what? Why don't we say mind is a terrible thing to waste, but it's an incredibly important thing to invest in. And so that became the that became the new thought. And today when these H when the kids who are supported by UNCF graduate, they stand up at their at their graduation and say, I'm so-and-so, I'm your investment. And it was literally, when I got to present that at their annual dinner, the new campaign, I was almost crying. Because it was so, it was so good. The team that put it together was so great. And you realize you actually make a difference. And it did make a big difference because it brought in people who before hadn't given money to UNCF, but now they're looking at it in a different way because they're saying, wow, it's not like I'm supporting some poor kid. This is core to the fabric of America. And it brought in some conservative money that had never, ever come that way before. So that's interesting. Special Olympics is a huge passion. Um, Debbie, my wife and I, when we were younger, we lost a child. We had a, a baby born. We were you know, just sort of kids was our second child. Um, he was born with Down syndrome and every possible complication you could ever imagine in the history of mankind. And he died at the age of six months. And so when we came back to America and I got to meet Tim Shriver and learn about Special Olympics, it became a passion because I had this way of sort of making that very short life feel fulfilled in some way. And so I've become very involved. I love Tim. Tim Shriver is one of the most inspiring human beings that I know. Um, I love working with him. And the and the the movement is amazing. And what's amazing about the movement, and I've been to the games in um, Abu Dhabi, I've been in Los Angeles, I've been elsewhere. As opposed to the Olympics, which are very political. And as you know, if Iran, for example, decides to walk off the court because they don't want to play Israel, they get away with it. They get away with that kind of hate. In the Special Olympics, you can't come if you're going to do that. And so in the torch relay, 
Israel hands it off to Iran. They don't have a choice. And the beauty, of course, as you know, you know, children who have Down syndrome never very loving, and they don't know from hate. That's not what that's not in their world. And so we don't allow it in the system. We don't allow it in the Special Olympics. So I find the Special Olympics to be incredibly powerful and a lesson for all athletes, not just for special athletes. Great, great. So that's just some of the stuff I'm involved in. Um, Christopher Reeve, I have two young friends, uh, Alan Brown and Danny Human, who are both, who happen to have been best friends growing up. And within a couple of years, each other, both were injured. Can you imagine? And uh, Danny ended up being a paraplegic and Alan ended up being a quadriplegic. And they're both, both had family um, funds I was involved with. And both those funds were rolled into the Christopher Reeve. So we're involved with that. That's kind of interesting and important. So Great, great stuff. Well, David, an absolute joy to talk to you. And uh, more so than anyone else I know who's had the resume of accomplishment that you had, you stay relevant and your finger on the pulse and your passion for the industry and the work and thought leadership you continue to put out on your latest platform uh, is really admirable. And uh, we, I know we're having some fun on some other projects. We're getting off the ground together and I look forward to a lot more uh, fun and uh, getting stuff done with you in the future. Me too. And man, I'll just say on behalf of myself, I don't talk for anybody anymore, but on behalf of myself, like you keep the flame of what this business is really about, lit and alive. And I'm thanking you for that because it is true. And I, I think that people need to not be embarrassed to be in our business. We need to get over it. You're in advertising, live it, love it. That's what we do. It's a wonderful business. And my bet is a thousand years from now, when it's no longer digital, maybe it's telepathy, God knows what, we're still going to be creating stories. We're still going to be doing what we do to help brands, products connect with people. And that's the core of what we're about. It's not about the technology. The technology changes all the time. Of course, you have to be up on the technology. I pride myself that I'm at the forefront of that. But at the end of the day, it just is. It is what it is. It's going to change. That's the world. But be proud of the business. Great stuff. Well, I'm proud of our friendship and grateful for it. And uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk soon, pal.